James chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, for those of you who are just joining us, welcome. We are in the middle of a series of the book of James. And one of the things that I find interesting, coincidentally, about this series and its timing is that here we are in the 500th year of the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther began a, a, a Reformation by the act of nailing a document onto the door of a church. And that document specifically challenged the teachings of the Roman church against the scriptures. That is to say, it used the scriptures to indicate places where the church had erred. And Luther did this in order to reform the church in order to bring it into conformity with God's word. Many people think that the reformers broke from the Roman church, but actually their desire was to heal it, to bring it back to health. And one of the interesting aspects of celebrating such a thing 500 years later is a very stark reminder and a, a deep understanding of the reality that we need a reformation once again today. Many Christians understand the point of the gospel, that is, we have been saved by faith, and we hope to, by that faith, be judged as righteous and go to heaven. And everyone around the world who believes in the true gospel would say yes and amen. However, the Reformed Church today, it is my, it is my estimation, and I think many share that estimation with me, is we have, a, we have lost an understanding of the need for holiness in the lives of Christians. We need a deep reformation in primarily this issue, what is the use of God's law? How does God's law 
inform how we should live? Is the law merely an indicator that I'm a sinner and then I come to Christ and then the law has done its job? Or does the law have a continuing use for the believer? And the Reformed Church in her history always maintained a special and important understanding of the use of the law. But today, the, the larger evangelical world, those who were the, the theological heirs of the reformers, if you will, we have, we have neglected the importance of the law of God. And we have neglected specifically this understanding of a future judgment according to our deeds. We short-circuit the warnings of Scripture into just, oh, well, those who sin are judged according to their deeds, and those who are in Christ, they don't have to worry about that. And we, we do a disservice to Scripture when we truncate and short-circuit. What is short-circuiting? It's when you have this complex diagram of electricity flowing through different devices, transistors, batteries, capacitors, chips, various banks of memory, and a short-circuit is where a line gets connected in a way that bypasses all of that flow, all of that design. And I believe that's what we do with the scripture today. We short circuit the warnings. We bypass them too quickly and they, we don't feel their effect. So if you've been at our church for a long time, you may remember during our series in Hebrews, we went through this exact same process, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 12, that there are warnings given, Hebrews 6 especially, there are warnings given in the New Testament to those who would presume upon God's grace. The danger is not trusting in Christ. The danger is claiming to trust in Christ, but having a life full of idolatry and full of sin, all the while presuming upon God's grace, assuming that you can claim it when he has not yet claimed you. And so I believe James's warnings today should be examined very clearly, very, very closely. The first thing I want to do is look at how James, in the beginning of this chapter, applies God's law as it concerns how believers should behave in the church. That is to say, in this judgment, this hypothetical scenario in which James says you're distinguishing between rich and poor, what is he doing in calling them to account for that sin? How does he name it as sin? And how does he indicate that it actually is a great sin that the, that the Christian church should ever distinguish between those who are poor and those who are rich? And then moving from that, I want to see how James commends the law of God, calling it the royal law, in, in last week's chapter, we saw it was the law of liberty. And again, he uses that same phrase in this passage and portion. What is that royal law for? What is it to do? Is it to merely indicate sin? Or is it also to not only indicate sin, show us our need for Christ, but is it not also, and I, I think James would say yes, is it not also something that is a rubric for how we live? and an objective standard outside of us by which we might measure our lives. What does it mean to fulfill the law? Does it mean to keep it perfectly? Does it mean to keep it without error, without misstep? We're going to look at what James asks them to do or tells them to do. And then finally, I want to look at this last final portion of today's passage, verse 12 especially. How are we to live as those who will be judged? And I want to look at this verse very carefully. I, I rarely do this, but I want to do it because I feel there is such great neglect in the modern church of a judgment according to our deeds. 
And, and so many of us, we have become so steeped in reform verbiage, but we haven't understood the reform doctrine. And, and we think any such language of judgment according to our deeds is Romanish, or it's, or it's heresy, or it's a false gospel. But I want to I plainly present the New Testament canon. If you were here at the beginning of our series in James, my bold assertion was that as John Gill said that there was no difference between the writings of Paul and the writings of James, my goal today is through this warning that James gives, we're going to actually do a New Testament survey about the issue of a judgment according to deeds, a judgment according to works. And we're going to see both today in the entire series, and especially next week, that that is not against justification by faith. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, and those works which we ought to do must flow from that faith, as James will argue in next week's passage. So just at the very beginning, I want to examine James's warning, and it's important to understand James is not writing a letter to the world. Paul also said this, I have nothing to do with judging outsiders. It is those in the church who I am to judge. That is, Paul had a responsibility as an overseer and even an apostle of the church to guard her against errors, not just in doctrine, but in practice. And so James also, he writes to the church. He's not writing a letter by which we should read it and then judge culture or judge the world system, although it does judge the world system. He is writing a letter to a church of Christians. My brothers, show no partiality when? As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He notices he addresses those who claim to be enlightened by the gospel. He is not claiming to have something to say about those who are outside of Christ. He addresses them as brothers, and he says, do not do this where or when as you hold the faith in Jesus Christ. So he's writing to those who ought to be considered as true Christians, true believers. He's writing to those who themselves consider themselves as true Christians. He's not writing to a group which knows that it is outside of Christianity. He is not writing this as an apologetic to the unsaved world. He addresses his brothers who hold the faith and meet in assemblies. They meet together in churches. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you sat over there or sit down at my feet. This would be exactly like our country about you know, 50 to 100 years ago in a division in the public square between white and black. There used to be a public-sanctioned division in the public square between race in our country. That would be a violation of James's law. And as, as wonderful as our Christian heritage is, the founders of our country did not deal with the issue of slavery. They kicked the can down the road and we sowed the seeds and reaped what we sowed in the Civil War. Nevertheless, the point of this passage addresses the church. And for a nation which considers itself to follow after Christ, it must judge itself according to the word of Christ. That's beside my point, but it, it holds. I actually thought today about wearing like a beat-up t-shirt just to test, but I don't think that's what James is talking about. He's not dismissing the importance of honoring the Lord's Day by wearing 
attire that's fitting a king. We, we believe that Christ is the king of kings and lord of lords, and would you be comfortable wearing this clothing in front of the president? If not, would, would you wear it before the king of kings? Now, I don't believe that Christ judges by external appearance. I don't think that's what James is saying. However, he is, he is speaking about those who are too poor to afford anything better. In fact, James is, is referring to one of the rabbi's teachings about the, the law of God in which they had an extra rule, which I thought was a good rule when I heard it. If a poor man and a, a rich man are in suit against each other in the court of law, the rich man had to pay for the poor man to wear clothing that was befitting so there would be no visual distinguishing as they approached that, that courtroom. And I thought that, I don't think that's the law of God. It's obviously an addition to the law of God, but it was an interesting observation because what they're saying is that men do judge by appearance, even though we're told not to. That's what James is saying. He says, do not judge by appearance. James is literally applying Christ's commandment to not judge by appearance. Jesus said in John 7, do not judge by external appearance, but judge with right judgment. And so James is talking about people who come into the church and then the believers who claim to know God, the God who judges without, without respect to persons, they then begin to judge with respect to that person. Verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? It's important to understand that James is applying Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. He says in, in Leviticus, they are given a command to not side with the powerful and the rich just because they are powerful in a court of law. And this exact same understanding fills the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul addresses the Corinthian church and claims that they ought to, in their assemblies, hold courts. That is, if there be a dispute between two brothers, don't take it to the Roman court system. It's, he says it's even a sin for you to even bring this to trial. Why not rather be wronged? But even if you do have to bring it to trial, bring it before the elders, bring it before the congregation. And so I think James is pointing at the very same thing when he says in verse 4, you have become judges with evil thoughts. They've already begun to judge the poor man as unworthy of a place in the church, thus putting him in the far back area or at their feet instead of next to them in full fellowship. This is exactly what Paul also said to the Corinthian church concerning how they were approaching the Lord's Supper. Some of you are showing up drunk. Some of you are eating before others can get there. He, he's addressing a division in their church, and James likewise is, is addressing that in this letter. He declares their distinguishing between rich and poor in the church as a violation of God's law, and that begs the question, why should they care if they violated God's law? You see, so much of the American church has dismissed the applicability of the law of God to believers that we can't even hear James rebuke them when he cites the law because we don't know the law. And because we don't know the law or think it's important, when he does rebuke them according to the law, we try to dismiss James as a letter not worth reading. Or a letter which has to be, we have to jump through hoops to harmonize. Or a letter which we ought to dismiss, because that's James and that's the hard epistle. By no means is that how James wants to be heard. He is appealing to them by citing Christ's commandments, 
as we're going to see, by citing the entire Sermon on the Mount, at least in chapter 5, and then appealing over and over again to the Ten Commandments as indicators of how Christians should live. James demonstrates the worldly thinking which has clouded their minds, and in doing so, he reminds them of God's grace in the gospel. In verse 5, he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chose those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? If you have heard the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps you just heard an echo in James. He said, those who are poor in the world, to do what? To be heirs of the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This this is the writings of Christ being applied through James to the church. James quotes this as an accusation against their behavior. They're claiming to be those who trust in Christ, And yet at the same time, they're unwilling to even hear Christ's commands. If you were here uh, three weeks ago, we we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 how God called the people to himself and he chose those people which were not mighty or noble or had any sort of calling that was uh, of worth or repute. They weren't powerful. They weren't rich. And we note even today in our own church, there are not many who are, are rich. In fact, there are None who are rich. There are a few who are middle class, and there are a few who are upper middle class, and there are many who are poor. And that's exactly who God has always chosen throughout all time. The New Testament warns deeply against the difficulty by which those who have wealth are, are saved. Jesus warned himself it's easier to pass through the eye of a ne- for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. That is to say that there's something about earthly riches that blinds one to one's spiritual need and condition. That's why Christ says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their poverty and recognize their need, for they shall receive a kingdom. So James implies that they are doing the very thing against which God has uh, has demonstrated the gospel. God demonstrated the gospel by uh, permitting it and de- and declaring that it should spread among those who are dishonored by the world. And having that gospel spread by those, among those who were dishonored by the world, James says these believers have forgotten God's entire sovereign plan. James says this would be a failure to love their neighbor and a shameful affront to the gospel. He says, it's important to understand in verse 2, he says, for if, and then verse 3, and if. So, I I don't believe that James is writing to a specific church about a specific problem. Perhaps he's actually writing to many churches of whom he's heard this is common behavior in the Christian church in the first century as he writes. I I think that's the case, that he's writing to address a common issue. And is is this letter not applicable to today's church? The majority of the church, especially of the evangelical world, has imbibed a doctrine called the prosperity message or the prosperity gospel, in which righteousness is accorded with financial blessing. And financial blessing, or the lack thereof, is an indicator on a societal level of righteousness or unrighteousness. This is, I, I believe James would rebuke the American church with the exact same words. Verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? I love how he does this. He's appealed to the law of God, and now he's just appealing to a, a societal reality. The wealthy are the ones who abuse you. Verse 7, are they not the ones also who blaspheme 
the honorable name by which you are called. Instead of showing partiality between the rich and the poor, James calls them to love their neighbor. Now look at how James moves past this indictment. He indicts them for distinguishing between rich and poor. He indicts them for not loving their neighbor. And then he goes on to uphold the law of God as something which should apply to his audience, to his hearers. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the law, the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So what does it mean for me to dishonor a poor person and to be favorably disposed to the rich person? It means I have not loved my neighbor. How have I not my, loved my neighbor? In two ways. First, I have dishonored a poor man who most likely is poor because of God's sovereign decree for his station and position in life. Likewise, I have also elevated in pride and puffed up the, re the respectability of a man with wealth. I have imbibed of the world's doctrine and I have hated my neighbor. I've hated both of these neighbors. It's not just that I've dishonored the poor man. I've also elevated and puffed up the man who has wealth. I've, I've not loved my neighbor. And James then says, if you really fulfill the royal law, then you are doing well. Verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And immediately, because we are so foreign to the doctrine of the New Testament, as Christians, we say, well, I'm, I'm a believer. I have forgiveness for that sin. Yes and amen, brother, you do have forgiveness for that sin, but James is writing, and he's assuming that you know you shouldn't be convicted by the law as transgressors any longer. That's what he's saying. James, having named God's word as the perfect law in the prior chapter and the law of liberty, now writes the phrase, the royal law. What does it mean for this to be called the royal law? I think it means at least two things. First, that the law is considered royal and that it is given by Christ himself. Many Christians erroneously call the law in the Old Testament as the law of Moses or Moses' law. And they suppose by calling it the law of Moses that they are not also understanding that it was the law given through Moses. It was the law handed down through a mediator, through Moses, but it was a law written by God. It is the codification or the encoding of God's heart for his people. It is considered the royal law because it is given by a royal decree. It is Christ the king who utters his law. And because we honor him as king and kings and lord of lords, we ought not to see it as the law of man, but it is the law of God, which supersedes the law of man. For example, to, to use a very simple societal application of the law of God versus the law of man. For example, in our country, the Supreme Court has defied the law of God by declaring two unrighteous decrees among many other unrighteous decrees. First is Roe v. Wade, which says that there is a right, a God-given right in the jurisprudence of the, new, of the American culture, American law, which says there's a God-given right to destroy a human life in the womb. That is a law of man, which is against God's law. Also, Obergefell v. Hodges says that there is a right, a God-given right, for a man to so-called sanctify his union, again, air quotes, union with another man or a woman 
air quotes, union with another woman, and call that marriage. Those two laws are unrighteous decrees, which defy the law of God and supersede God's law with man's law. They attempt to elevate their law higher than the royal law. The point is that James is speaking about this law as a law which is given from on high. It is a law which is given by God himself. It is a law which comes to us, which we must receive. And only in having received that law can we be indicted by our sin, which is shown to us through the law, and then pointed to a remedy, which is Christ. Nevertheless, that law continues to have moral, individual, and societal application. It trains us what is evil or good. That is what the law's purpose is. Further, the law is royal in that it was given to God's people who were to be kings and priests. We hear in Deuteronomy 7 that they are to be a holy people to God. To God. That is, God owns the people of Israel. They're his treasure. They're his garden which he is forming in this promised land. He is tending to that vineyard. They are to be his special treasure. First Peter then uses that exact same phrase, writing to believers, as the continuation of the people of God, that they are to be kings and priests. Likewise, in Revelation 5, those who surround the throne of the Father in heaven call out, worthy are you, for have you redeemed a people by the blood of the Lamb? And you've made them to be what? Kings and priests to God, where? In heaven, after the second coming? On the earth. This is who we are to be as Christians. You've been called to be a king and a priest. Earlier in the the Sunday school hour, my dad made mention of the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. How can we consider that doctrine to be so precious in the Reformed Church as we should hold it to be precious if we do not understand we are to be priests? Priests who, who are sanctified, priests who are set apart for service, priests who cannot become entangled with sin, and still presume to enter the Holy of Holies. That is what I believe James is talking about when he says, this is a royal law. You've been called to excellency. You've been called to purity, the purity that is fitting for Christians who've been sanctified with God's blood, with Christ's blood. This is the law by which God's people are to live in his kingdom. It is a law which defines behavior in Christ's kingdom. James then continues to the other commandments, and he does this, and it it reminds them of the continuing applicability of the law to the believer. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Now, if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, you might hear he picks up the same two laws which Christ used in the Sermon on the Mount to show that the law did not just concern external behavior, but it actually concerned also inward behavior, the thoughts and intentions, the secret things of the heart. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. He, he asserts that and then he explains, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. By commending the law as a guide to the believer, James speaks in concert with the entire New Testament canon. If you want to see how and why, I would encourage you, there are verses on the slides 
throughout the teaching that have deeper basis and a deeper applicability. And I've, I've been especially careful to include passages that can, are hard to take out of context, that have a lot of supporting material in that section. So, knowing that the law applies to us as a guide, it will also be our rubric in judgment. Verse 12, so speak, he says, in light of what I've just said, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What precisely does James want us to know by this commandment? When I hear this word or this, this sentence, I hear it and I think to myself, okay, James, you're saying something very important and very heavy because what you've just said is those who break the law in any one part have broken all of it. And then he goes on to say, so therefore speak and so act or act accordingly and speak accordingly as those who will be judged by the law. And I think to myself, wow, James, that, that is a huge idea that I'm going to be judged according to the law. And he says the law of liberty, but what does he mean by that? Now, as I mentioned earlier, I don't usually like to dissect verses in this manner, but I actually think it's very important here. First, we're going to look at this idea, so speak and so act. First, if you claim to be enlightened by God's, your actions should accord to his ways. This is a, right, a, a teaching that is throughout the New Testament. We won't examine every place in which the New Testament brings this out. But he is emphasizing these two aspects. Our words and our deeds ought to conform to God's law. When I say God's law, I don't just mean the Ten Commandments. I mean everything that God has commanded man in all of the scriptures. So it, it is not, we are not able to claim with our words alone that we know Christ and, and treasure Christ. Our actions must accord with our speech. So speak and so act. Consistent with our claim of faith in Christ, we ought to conform our lives to God's law. I'm going to just turn to 1 John 2 for just a second, just to emphasize what this says. In verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And when you read the rest of the New Testament, you, you can't throw a stone, so to speak, a few verses left or right and not find such an emphasis. Our lives ought to be marked by purity and holiness. Because of God's great power, we ought to walk in a new life. That is what the gospel puts forth as a promise, to be washed and to be given a new life, to be a new creation in Christ. Therefore, our speech and our actions should begin to line up with, with God's law, with God's word for righteousness to men. Second, his warning of a future judgment is not a novel doctrine, but is routinely attested or asserted or spoken of or testified to or witnessed of in the New Testament. That a judgment which is still to come is routinely asserted over and over again. Jesus taught that he was given, in John 5, 25 through 29, all authority, authority to execute judgment. That is a judgment in the future. Christ himself also warned that those who heard his word but did not keep it would be judged by that word. And again, when we understand God's law, not just as the code given through Moses, but 
the entire sum of all of God's commandments to men, that of course includes God's gospel, God's word. And so Jesus says, if you hear my words, but you do not keep them, if you don't receive them, if you do not believe in me, you will be judged. As Peter preaches to Cornelius, he says that Christ has been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. This is, this is Peter's opening statement to a Gentile. The reason why it, it shows up so late in the book of Acts is the majority of the Jewish hearers of the earlier sermons recorded in the book of Acts already presumed a future judgment. And so as, he, as soon as Peter turns to Gentiles, as those who may be unfamiliar with the, the teaching of Judaism about a future judgment, he then emphasizes that fact. Likewise, when Paul gets to the Greeks in the city of Athens, he says that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And then he goes on to say, of this he gave proof by raising that man from the dead. That is Christ. Paul's letter to the Romans describes God's judgment of men according to their works through Jesus Christ. Refer to Romans 2 there. In both letters to the Corinthians, Paul speaks of a judgment of recompense. 2 Corinthians 5, he, he spends the entire beginning of 2 Corinthians 5 talking about he and his team and the works that they've done to spread the gospel. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, for all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Those who have the law of Moses but set it aside through disobedience are judged under its sentence of death. How much more those who trample the blood of Christ. This is the way the Hebrew writer says there is a judgment awaiting those who neglect and dismiss and despise the blood of Christ. Peter says that those who call God Father, should live in holy fear, for they were ransomed with Christ's blood. For he, that is God, is the one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. I hope this doesn't sound too foreign to you. This is the teaching of the New Testament. Some of the final words in the scriptures concern Christ and Revelation as he's speaking and John writes it down, John the Revelator, he writes it down concerning his soon coming to do this, to repay each one for what he has done. And truth be told, I had a difficult time selecting which ones to include and not. Second Corinthians 3, the one who builds on a foundation but doesn't use gold, silver, and precious stones, but uses hay, stubble, and wood, he will be judged as though through fire he himself will be saved but as one who suffers loss. That is to say, the New Testament is replete with a warning according to a judgment of works. Clearly, the New Testament is gloriously unified. Even though I've read all of these passages over and over again throughout my life, as I was preparing this, I was just celebrating in the clarity of the New Testament in its beautiful harmony and God's wonderful grace in warning those who would presume to go to that day of judgment without regard to how they have lived. We presume, because we've been told a gospel that is truncated, we presume because we have an easy claim of faith on Christ that our last day is guaranteed. But the New Testament over and over again has warnings. Do not presume that you are in the faith. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Over and over again, the writers of the New Testament want us to understand that we will be judged according to our deeds, 
What does that mean? Finally, I want to look at the last phrase, under the law of liberty. Finally, though this final judgment is by Christ, that is, it will be done by a judge who is perfect, who is not able to err, and it is a judgment according to our deeds or our works, we are judged under this standard, the law of liberty. Yes, those who are outside of Christ are condemned by their manifold sins, but those who hear Christ and believe his words do not come into judgment, but have passed out of death into life. This is what Christ himself said in in John 5. Those who believe in me have passed out of death and they've come into life. They escape judgment. How do they do it? Verse Uh, verse 10 of this very chapter emphasizes this. We are not judged as those who have never broken, must have never broken God's law. I want to explain four ways in which we will not be judged. Because if we hear James the wrong way, we'll be driven by fear to go seek to earn God's credit and approval. But actually, I believe James is just saying to conform your life through aligning it by faith to God's promises. The four ways we will not be judged is, first, we will not be judged as those who must have never broken God's law, right? Verse 10, he says, those who break God's law in one point are guilty of breaking all of it. Likewise, Paul in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned, all have fallen short. So if we were to be judged according to our deeds, and you hear that and you think we must have never broken one of God's law, Here clearly, that is not how we will be judged. Neither are we to be judged as those who must keep the law of our own power. If you remember back to our time in Galatians, you must remember Paul giving warnings to not work as those who work by the power of the flesh, but rather to work as those who work in the power of the Holy Spirit. The third way we are not judged is we are not judged even as those who must preserve ourselves to the end. Again, the writings in the New Testament are very clear. The perseverance of the saints is accomplished by God's grace alone. Jude one twenty four. now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Not to me who is able to keep me from stumbling. And then fourth, we are still not judged as those who must add to the Spirit's work with our own works. Again, we we have to harmonize James with the rest of the New Testament. And if we hear the New Testament and we don't short-circuit its message, it, it will not be difficult for us to hear that way. So what is the deed by which we will be judged? I believe it is this, that when Jesus was testifying to the, the people at the Feast of Booths in John chapter 6, that he was giving them a commandment to do this specific work, The only work which must be done is not a real work at all. That is, it's not a work of the flesh. It's not a work of keeping the law in the external code sense, but it is keeping God's law in the sense that God has given a law to mankind. And that law gospel, law dash gospel, is one and the same. Jesus told his hearers that day, the work of God is to do this. It is to believe upon the one whom he sent. That is the chief work which must be done, which is no work at all because it is actually a renunciation of work and a looking outside myself to Christ who is the only one who is able to give me life, the only one who is able to bring me across that threshold into the presence of God. So why is James warning them? Why is James warning them? He says, so speak and act as those who are going to be judged according to the law of liberty 
But if we know that Jesus told us those who believe in him do not get judged, but pass out of death and come into life, then, then how is James actually giving a warning? It sounds like James' warning has no tooth, so to speak. It has no bite to it. It is this, is we presume that those who are reading James and those who are hearing James are in the same category. There are two categories of James's hearers. There are two categories of those who are in the church. Those who claim to know Christ and of to those ones he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you workers of lawlessness. Why, why does he say that? Because he judges them because their deeds give evidence that they were never known by him. James is not saying something different from the rest of the New Testament. James writes to those who claim to have been transformed by the Spirit and those who have become new creations in Christ. So the understanding is, as I hear James and I hear, I'm going to be judged according to the law, if I have trepidation and fear and a a desire to put that day as far off as it possibly can, if I don't have confidence before that moment, then what that is revealing to me is I do not truly know the implications of the gospel. And, and by implications, I mean the source of the gospel, that is Christ's atonement, and then how that atonement begins to, by the Holy Spirit, be applied to my life so that my deeds begin to conform to God's ways. That is, I believe, what James is warning them is. He's saying to them, you will be judged. Do not presume as if your life does not matter. Those who are truly children of God delight to do God's will. They do not see it as a burden, but rather a joy. If I hear that I have to complete God's law, and there is something within me that reviles or recoils at that, then I do not understand what God means when he says to keep the law. I don't understand the New Testament promise, which is in Jeremiah 31, that God's law would move from a tablet of stone, and it would be engraved upon my heart. That is what the gospel promises. It is not just escape from hell. It is not just confidence at one day that we will be judged righteous. It is a judgment now. It's a declaration of righteousness by faith, which from that declaration of righteousness must flow conformity of life, thought, speech, activity, mindset to the way that God writes that I am to live. That is, by faith I lay hold of Christ. That faith comes from God as a gift to me. That as his word gains entry, as his gospel is preached, I lay hold of that word of promise. And that laying hold is all gift, it's all grace. And then if I have truly laid hold of it, I should necessarily see my deeds come into conformity with the rest of God's word. Those who are the children of God want to do God's law. And so for the child of God, this commandment or this warning, so speak and so act as those who will be judged according to the law of liberty, should have no, you, you should have no reason to fear at all. Indeed, those who, James is writing specifically to those who live as if their deeds do not matter. That is to say, the sort of faith which claims forgiveness in Christ, but then goes on continuing to live as if my life doesn't matter, those people are under spiritual delusion. And my fear is that so much of the American church has de-emphasized a future judgment according to works that we don't understand the right relationship between trusting in Christ now and believing in God's grace to perform a sanctification so that our deeds easily 
match up to God's law. Therefore, James warns them specifically for this reason against living in presumption, in this case, by showing no mercy to the poor man. What is he doing here in this chapter? I believe James is talking about one thing in this entire section. He says, don't show partiality because you're breaking God's law. And then he goes on, verse 8 and 9, to talk about murder and adultery. And then he goes on to say, if you break the law, you're guilty of all of the law. And then he goes on to say, verse 12, so speak and act as those to whom the law still matters. That's what I think James is saying. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. What is he saying? He's saying the act of showing partiality between a rich person and a poor person, honoring those who are wealthy in the eyes of the world and dismissing those who, though poor in the world, claim Christ and therefore are infinitely rich in God, doing that is a judgment without mercy. And again, as I've asserted, James is simply walking his audience through the Sermon on the Mount, right? We remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And then James says, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Why does he say that? He's repeating the words of Christ. Blessed are the merciful, for what? They shall receive mercy. I think that those who are merciful is those who have received mercy and that mercy becomes the ground for their giving mercy to others. I believe that's what James is saying. And the sort of living which does not see the implication of God's law as applying to the social understanding of the church are not living according to God's law. They are living in a lifestyle that judges without mercy. And then James gives us one wonderful promise, mercy triumphs over judgment. Isn't that wonderful, beautiful, and sweet? That God's mercy would be able to lay hold of wicked sinners who used to do this all the time and transforms them to those who are merciful. And, and then Christ is able to say of them, they are blessed for they will receive mercy. Those who are truly in Christ as evidenced by their deeds which flow from faith have no need to fear approaching the judgment seat of Christ. James's letter is not pulling any punches. And I believe as Christians, we should not do that to the word. We need to allow the word to speak even when it challenges our doctrine. To tell you the truth, brothers and sisters, I spent more time on this preparation than most sermons require. Why? Because God's word is precious, and in some places it is difficult. But it is important for you as saints to not be scared of God if you have no reason to be. Nevertheless, we must be careful as we read God's word, lest we deceive ourselves, presuming to lay hold of God's grace when we have no rightful claim upon it. And so I would just encourage you that when you look at your life in the light of James's writings, and you see those places in which your life doesn't accord with God's word. Move as fast as you can, laying hold of the grace of God to repent of those deeds. At the same time, knowing that it is God's grace which even brings the issue to the forefront. And then God's grace which carries you, as I said earlier, across that threshold into that place where Christ would be able to say of you that you're blessed. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would allow your word, to deliver us from our self-deception. God, I pray that 
for those who have approached you through religion or through, through forms of godliness, but denying the power that, that you would deliver them from the deception of the evil one. Father, we confess clearly that if we were to stand on our own basis, no one could pass a judgment according to the law of liberty. But nevertheless, we know that your word says that those who have been applied the blood of Christ, that those pass out of judgment and come into life. God, I pray that you would allow us to, to hear James's warnings and that we would be delivered from even thinking of a burden, but rather that we would hear it as he says it, that it's a law of liberty, that we would recognize the glorious freedom to which we've been called and that all of our life, all that we say, all that we do, would begin to conform to your ways, that we would be evidences of your grace walking around on this earth. God, I pray for the sort of love for your word which does not short-circuit its teachings, but allows it to speak clearly and fully. A sort of reading of your word which does not pull the punches, but allows them to be blows which smite our conscience, allowing us to be transformed to a humbling of repentance. God, I pray that in the areas in which our lives do not conform to your word, that you would bring those to clarity, that you would convict us by your spirit, by your word, and that you would grant us repentance, which leads to life. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.